everyone, and welcome to today's episode of our Seven Investing Podcast. I'm Seven Investing CEO and founder Simon Erickson, joined by my entire lead advisor team. We've been hearing a lot about valuation in the stock market recently. Some people are saying that stocks are overvalued in certain sectors. Others are even going so far as to say the stock market is in a bubble. But of course, at Seven Investing, we are long-term investors. And so my question for the team today will be with regard to valuation and how it plays a role in everyone's investing process. In the second segment of our show today, I'll be asking each of our advisors to provide one reckless M&A prediction for 2021. So with that in mind, perhaps I'll start the show uh, by directing this question to you, Austin Lieberman, and then to Steve Symington, because I know the two of you are following tech stocks. And a lot of people are saying that there's parts of the economy, specifically in cloud computing, perhaps artificial intelligence, that are getting a little bit frothy out there. But Austin, can you tell me what role valuation plays for you as an investor? I just completely ignore evaluation and don't care about it at all. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, I am happy and willing to to buy stocks and own companies that people, the, you know, the common uh, narrative is that they're overvalued, but I do actually pay attention to valuation. And so it kind of works on a spectrum for me, right? Like I'm traditionally looking at companies that are between 1 billion and 50 or even up to a hundred billion dollars in market cap. As in my opinion, as companies move and they have a, a higher market capitalization. So if they're 50 to hundred billion, I start to care about the, the valuation on a price to sales multiple or something like that a lot more than if a company is a one or $2 billion company. And the reason is, is just because um, it's harder as companies grow larger and larger to accelerate their revenue growth. So to grow revenue even faster uh, because they run into kind of the challenge of the law of large numbers. So as companies get larger, I focus more on valuation. If a company is smaller and they have a great product, they're in an important and growing industry, they have reliable recurring revenue and they do something important. So for example, we've seen um, CrowdStrike in the news a lot and they've been, there was, there's been some data breaches and uh, we've seen that stock basically get revalued at a higher valuation in my opinion is because the world has now decided that security is important. CrowdStrike has a good product and that market is going to continue to be more important. Uh, I'm happy to um, own companies like that and continue owning them even as their valuation extends a little bit. And the biggest mistakes that I have made as an investor is to not own companies because of valuation. I did it with Shopify I did it with the trade desk. Uh, there's even a, a couple more in there that I've done it with. Is that always going to be the narrative? Um, is there going to be some type of sell-off or, or something like that? Uh, possibly, yes. I don't own Shopify. I don't own the trade desk. I think that uh, their current valuations and the growth rate that they're going to have as large of companies as they are now, is it, it's going to be challenging for them to outperform the market uh, moving forward. But I don't think the whole market is in a bubble. And I think that uh, because of their dynamic platforms and again, we haven't even talked about, I didn't even talk about this, but low rates, uh, the, the, a lot of these tech companies deserve the higher valuations, but we, we do have to look for like pockets of 
way, way overvalued or pockets of, of bubbles. I think that makes a lot of sense that the valuations of, of high-flying tech stocks should be uh, a little bit more generous than more traditional companies. Steve Simonton, you also follow the tech markets. What's your approach to valuation? Yeah, um, I think that's a great point Austin made about um, paying more attention uh, to specific valuation metrics as businesses mature. And uh, I think many investors tend to underestimate um, the ability for companies to grow into seemingly expensive valuations. And, uh, and I don't think it's a bad thing when um, Wall Street sometimes assigns just seemingly exorbitant multiples. And, uh, and when companies are large and they have big um, opportunities in front of them, often those multiples are high for a reason. So uh, sometimes I will take um, traditional valuation metrics with a grain of salt uh, if the opportunity is large enough. And that's kind of how I view um, analyzing businesses is uh, as a function of their current size, current size of their business and the markets that they're chasing. So if you have say a $1 billion company, uh, you know, company with an enterprise value market cap, uh, 1 billion, and you want to, you know, they're chasing uh, an industry that's worth 500 billion. Uh, and you think they have a reasonably good chance of taking a significant chunk of that industry over the long term. Uh, I think uh, eventually uh, the value of that business will follow suit. And it kind of brings me back to, um, and sometimes the the multiples will even expand uh, as it becomes evident that they're taking that. And that actually brings me back to an interview uh, with Chris Mayer a few months ago, the author of 100 Baggers, you know, looking for stocks that return 100 times your money. And he refers often, I love this concept of uh, twin engines uh, in delivering outsized long-term returns. So, you know, you're looking at growth in both the size of the business and the multiples the, the market puts on the stock. And, uh, You'll find often uh, the risk um, will the risk of companies as they appreciate in value will go down because the business is a higher quality business and the market's willing to place a higher multiple on that. Um, so really, you know that that's kind of the way I, I approach. Um, you know, the, the specific metrics for each company kind of depends on the company, but the way I approach uh, those businesses is looking at them as a function of the opportunity they're chasing and the chances I think they're going to get it. So uh, I, I think that's a very important way um, that I try to, uh, to analyze whether a company is undervalued or not relative to its long-term potential. Makes a lot of sense, Steve. Matt, let me ask for your perspective on this one, because you've recommended some very large tech companies for seven investing. Steve says that the multiples get higher because they're less risky as those companies expand in size. What's your approach to valuation? Uh, yeah, like I, I would just say like, you know, I think some investors place valuation on a pedestal, you know, making it the defining characteristic of their investment process, placing it above all else. And others seem to value it, no pun intended, as something entirely insignificant. And I think, you know, uh, valuation matters, but traditional valuation metrics are far from the end all and be all of investing. So I would say along with growth and margins, valuation is usually one of the first things I look at in a company uh, just to see if a company's numbers seem to make sense. Um, you know, and if a company is just growing uh, revenue at like 10%, but it has a price to sales ratio of 50, I just pass it. You know, I only have a finite time uh, to study and learn about stocks. And I just like, uh, I find this like kind of like a hack to help me direct my attention to better current investment opportunities. Uh, 
with what Steve and Austin were saying about like the larger the market cap, the more valuation matters. I, I definitely agree. A small cap has a much better chance of growing into an outsized valuation than a large cap. Uh, completely agree. Um, and then after studying a company extensively, like I'll again, I'll return my attention again to its valuation. And this time with a little bit more vigor. Um, before invest, investing, I must believe that the company's future cash flow expectations uh, will give shareholders a decent return. Um, and if not, uh, but if I like the company's economic moat and or optionality, like I might make a small investment to keep it on my radar and then just kind of slowly just buy at different time intervals and just real slowly build myself uh, into uh, a position. Uh, like that's what Steve was saying about like uh, Chris Bear and like the twin engines of uh, of like evaluation being like re-rated and plus the company's earnings growing. Um, like that's, that's something I picked up. Like uh, there's a, a biography of an investor called Sh uh, of Shelby Davis who turned like a $50,000 uh, like uh, wife's inheritance into like uh, it's something ridiculous, like a billion dollars by the time he died or something. And he called that a Davis double play uh, when he would buy like a low multiple stock uh, with that could grow. And like as the as the valuation uh, got re-rated and like it was assigned a higher valuation in the earnings growth, he would call it a, a Davis double play. And so like what he was saying about uh, Chris Bayer's uh, like twin inches, that reminds me a lot of that. That's a great point, Matt. You know, I think that's kind of aligned with something you and I have talked about a long, a, a, for many years now, which is, I'll jump in with my perspective on this too, is that I, I tend to look for value points along the way where you're getting, you know, those expectations you, you mentioned about cash flows or how the business is performing. I tend to like to look at those in a historical context of how, of how do we stand in terms of a multiple of sales, of cash flows, of, uh, of operating margins, whatever it might be. The market should be giving higher multiples as companies expand, but also sometimes even as the stock price continues to go up, you're getting a better deal in terms of, uh, of multiple of those fundamentals. And so I tend to look for companies that are performing very well in their sector. We look for all the competitive advantages and all that other good thing, but evaluation does matter and you always want to get a good deal, especially if you're investing for the long term. Uh, Dan Klein, you have self-professed to being one of the most conservative investors on our seven investing team. How do you think about valuation in that context? So I don't that much, largely because I'm buying companies uh, that I see have strong growth that tend to be somewhat mature. I'm not... I'm not buying, you know, an early stage, you know, tech company. I mean, I am now because I'm buying Max and Manisha's picks, but I'm letting them do the research. Uh, but in general, it's not something I think about. Look, if you're buying an established, say, retailer, and you could say, hey, this retailer is going to add this many stores, those tend to not be these crazy overhyped valuations. Now, what I will say is... Uh, when I look at something that's in the tech space, it is something I think about. And even when it's a really high valuation, I say, what's the opportunity? And if the opportunity is just like, hey, this company's going to keep growing, then I might say, okay, that's too expensive. If I, if I look at it and say, hey, this company is doing this, but they can legitimately like, you know, like Amazon before they had AWS. What If you thought AWS had any sort of potential, well, you could go, geez, this could double, triple, this could 10 times, even though as a retailer, it was on its way towards some level of maturity. So I really look at what the optionality is. And, you know, let's say, let's take a very mature company like Starbucks, and you can see the exact growth pattern for where they're going to hit saturation in the US, they'll eventually hit saturation in China, and there's not that much more opportunity. So then you look at the premium 
opportunity. You say, okay, they can, you know, maybe another 50% in sales in premium. Well, could they do something else? Could they create? I don't know what that is, but if they came out with a new concept and they've tried other concepts like the fruit juice and things that didn't really work all that well, but let's say they came out with, you know, like a dessert concept and it caught on really well or an ice cream or whatever it is. And it was a whole new, well, then you might raise your target. So you really have to understand these companies. And I focus more on opportunity than I do on sort of like what something is worth or valuation at any moment. Cause multiples that were unheard of two years ago are now like, eh, we don't even talk about that one. So it's not a big factor for me. Again, I will occasionally dip my toe into the cannabis space and it's something I'm going to look at. If, if I look at something that has one location and it's being priced at, you know, a thousand times earnings and it's going to have to get to a hundred locations to even kind of sort of make sense. Yeah. Then I might think about it for the most part. It's very low on my scorecard. And I don't have an actual scorecard for people who are going to email me and say, send me your scorecard. <laughs> I think they're going to ask more about you dipping your toe in the cannabis space. That might be a question we follow up on later on the show as well, Dan. Uh, it's, there's one that I have on my – it's been my number two, I think, three, three months in a row. So there is one I will eventually get on my scorecard here. Further explanation required in January. I, I do like the point that you made about optionality and Starbucks. So many of the forecasts and the price targets are tied to linear forecasts that go into spreadsheet models that there are institutional investors that are expecting kind of straight line appreciation uh, for those forecasts of sales, of cash flows, or whatever it might be. Yeah, I don't so think, a lot. if I might just continue with the, the I, I think that this is not appreciating disruptive innovation or things that might be optionality, like you mentioned, Dan, or something that would break the models and happen much more quickly and exponentially than a lot of that can be captured. Let, let me give a, a real world example. So Dollar General is a business I like a lot. They open about a thousand stores a year. Their store sales are very predictable. They get to maturity in under a year. And you could sort of see the growth pattern and you could see, okay, they'll be saturated in the US in this many years. So what are their options? Other markets, very expensive from a supply chain point of view. A few months ago, if you remember, they came out with a new store concept based around sort of home stuff. Call it sort of like in the home, home goods space, like you know the Marshall's sister company. That gives them access to a new market, but it also exploits all their existing supply chain, and it probably is another thousand stores they can open up. So all of a sudden, their story changed. So you might have thought, this is predictable, this is boring, there's only so much growth here. And now all of a sudden, so good management finds ways to do that, finds ways to say, okay, we are buying things from all these places, we're shipping them to all these places, what else could we put nearby that would take advantage of all this infrastructure? So that's really what you have to watch for is smart management that, you know, that can can pivot and can add optionality. Let's take that optionality to the next level, Max Chatsko, and talk about biotech and living technologies and the companies that you tend to follow because so many of these companies are still super early stage, very, very small market capitalizations. How do you even think about valuation for looking at some of these types of companies? Yeah, so my stance on valuations has been evolving this year. As you guys know, I've like hit the Slack channels a bunch of times, like, what's going on? So uh, I, my position has been changing. But, um, you know, I was in this sweet spot where I'd find these early stage companies that had intriguing technology platforms. They were well run. They had great management teams um, within like under $3 billion market valuations, say, just things that were being overlooked by the market. Uh, and in 2020, that list has shrunk considerably. A lot of uh, valuations have been uh, shooting through the roof, even for companies that don't have any data. Uh, so it's really had to force me to reevaluate things. Um, 
So, I mean, you know, with, with biotech and Manisha is going to probably say something similar, but um, you know, it's, it's harder. There's no revenue, there's no earnings. So you have to value these things based on, you know, the underlying technical potential, the technology platform. Um, and, you know, do I think some of these companies are at absurd valuations and it's going to come back to bite some investors? Sure. Uh, but again, like I said, my, my stance has been changing a little bit where uh, I'm willing to get a little more out of my comfort zone in terms of, recommending companies or following or buying companies uh, that are, I think are overvalued, right? So for example, I've been kicking around for the last four months that I've been here, five months, uh, two companies, I almost recommended Fate Therapeutics and TG Therapeutics. And I was like, man, I don't know. These are valued at like four or $5 billion. Maybe they're too expensive. Um, well, they both doubled in the last uh, couple of months, just on good data, things I was looking at as potential catalysts. Um, so maybe I should have recommended them or bought them even more. Uh, but, uh, so it's kind of forced me to, you know, get a little out of my comfort zone. Um, but yeah, it is hard in, in biotech. It's, it's certainly different than like a cloud computing company, right? You can't justify evaluation by saying, well, it's growing at this clip. And, you know, maybe if you squint and tilt your head just the right way, you can look three or five years in the future and say, okay, we can justify this. Um, you know, when you're valuing companies with clinical data or no clinical data, um, you know, eventually the bill does come due with these companies. So I think we're going to see some that doesn't work out so well. And, um, I mean, others, they just keep going higher. So I think we're in a different market period with interest rates being low. They're going to be low for a while. So I think investors are willing to take on more risk because what else are you going to do with your money? How else are you going to return? So, um, it's an interesting time to be in biopharma for sure. Yeah, sure, Max. And talking about that underlying potential of the technology you mentioned, I know that a, a common metric in pharmaceutical investing is price to peak sales. If they do actually get something commercialized and it's out the door, what would be the peak sales on an annual basis? And then what would be the multiple we give on top of that? Any thoughts on that metric and the type of investing you do, or do you not really pay much attention to that? Well, that's part of my, uh, you know, look, like, I guess as a rule of thumb, you say like maybe five times sales is like a, a conservative estimate. So there's some companies that trade at three times sales. There's some companies that trade at 20 times sales. Um, so there's no real rule there. Again, it's like based on growth potential and what else is going on in the pipeline. Um, you know, if one drug or two drugs get approved, but there's 10 more drugs in the pipeline that based on similar technology, I mean, a company could trade at 20 times sales. Um, so it kind of is a case-by-case -case basis, which is what we do here at 7investing, right? We don't just shotgun approach it and buy everything that's in you know, CRISPR genomics or something, we, we try to pick uh, our shots. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's hard to, to really take any uh, specific metric as uh, the end all be all. Manisha, you said CRISPR and genomics, and that's your field of study right now. Uh, how do you think about valuation in the stock market? It is. Um, and if I can say the word ditto and like point to Max, I would do that. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> <Apparently. Like you> <laughs> said. <laughs> um, but that's exactly the case. It's impossible when you're looking at therapeutics in terms of what the market is going to be for specific indications. You just don't know. Um, you can model it out and that's going to make sense. But you can also model out likelihood of approval for certain uh, indications or certain drugs that uh, is in the pipeline for a specific company. But um, really what you're placing a bet on is this is the platform technology 
and I am placing a bet on this technology and it's going to work. And it doesn't matter which indication or what's going towards, um, but that's what you're placing a bet on. And I think that is something that it's kind of hard. It, 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 and it is a bit risky, but if you feel good enough about it, so you like the management, you like the technology, you research the technology, um, it should be some, the outcome should be something good. Um, and that's how I feel about it. So evaluation, I don't look at it too much. Um, maybe it will help me, you know, going into a certain name versus not, but in the grand scheme of things, um, it doesn't really matter. If I can uh, jump in asking Manisha something, so I don't really have an answer for this either, but there's so much going on in, in our space, cell therapy, genetic medicines, there's so much competition, right? There's like dozens of uh, trials and some specific indications. Do you think that throws off any of like the peak sales estimates for certain assets? Like, I guess- I, I think possible. it does. Like there could yeah, be- there like could be an, Talking oh, about sales, um, sorry, I cut you off. So do you wanna finish your question? I was just, you know, I think, it, is it possible that we see an asset get approved and there's a lot of uh, potential for it, the market saying, oh, this is a blockbuster, right? $1 billion or more in annual sales. Well, then something else comes up behind it um, in a year or months or whatever it is um, and is better. And then that kind of cuts the legs out from that asset, the first asset. And so it never actually reaches peak sales potential. I, like, do you think we're going to see some like cutthroat competition. It's great for patients and everybody, but is that there are going to be a, a ton of different assets that are going after, I guess, those peak sales. So the highs that we've been seeing for um, peak sales, I don't think we'll be seeing that. Um, maybe you have a different opinion, Max. Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be tough to, uh, I think, I think we have a lot, have of, a lot of different products off. that just kind of level out that and uh, with different efficacies and safeties, but um, yeah. would love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Max, we're yeah, going to capture just... your thoughts on that on the next show. We're going to keep everybody in suspense on that one, but it's a great question for biotech and kind of how this is a more of the foundational technologies, it sounds like, rather than just looking at multiples of sales or things like that for more mature companies. Uh, but now I'm going to I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to make the second part of this even more fun, which is where I'm going to ask everybody for a reckless prediction. We've talked about valuation. We've talked about how that plays a role in our investing. 2021 is coming up next year. We saw a lot of M&A during 2020. Let's make some crazy predictions on what's going to happen next year. And we're going reverse order for this one. So Manisha, I'm going to put you on the spot first. Okay. What's a reckless prediction you have for an acquisition in 2021? Either one of the leading CAR-T or one of the gene editing companies will get acquired, is my thought. But um, I hope they don't, and um, we'll see if that happens. I, I have no idea. Max Chatsko, let me bring this to you. You were also talking about biotech a little earlier. Uh, what's a company that you think is on the shopping list of other companies out there for 2021? Well, in 2020, we didn't see too much uh, acquisition activity in biopharma or pharmaceuticals. We saw the biggest one was just recently was the uh, Lexian Pharmaceuticals, 
acquisition for I think it was $39 billion. That's pretty big as far as the industry goes. Uh, besides that, it was myocardia, I believe, which was like around I think 13 billion or 20 billion, something around there. Um, and then it was just a bunch of smaller companies in the couple of billion dollar range or, or much less. We saw a lot of companies in the like 100 to $200 million range. So companies that are private. So I think we're going to see a pickup of activity in biopharma broadly, but my reckless prediction is that a major oil and gas super major producer will acquire a U.S. electric utility. Uh, not the company I recommended, but I think we're going to see a top 20 electric utility get acquired uh, by an oil and gas producer as they start to transition uh, away from liquid fuels and into electrification. So uh, we've already seen them kind of picking at the edges and nipping around, you know, buying assets and, and solar developers and things. But uh, I think it's uh, in Europe, actually, they've acquired some utilities, but I think they're going to bring that to the United States in 2021. Duly noted. Now, is Tesla in for consideration for that? I know that they have Solar City. That's kind of a utility for solar. Is one of the, is Exxon going to buy Tesla, Max? Is that possible? I don't even want to buy Tesla. I know Steve <laughs> has something to say about that. So. <laughs> I had to put you on the spot. Good one, Max. Okay, electric utility with uh, an oil and gas company. Let me bring it back over to you, Dan Klein. Who's, what's your reckless prediction for an M&A acquisition in 2021? So I joked earlier, uh, you know, that JCPenney is going to buy Amazon, which would, of course, be crazy. But I have a long history of making Amazon is going to buy predictions, and they're always wrong. I, I, I thought they were going to buy Radio Shack. I thought the retail footprint may – I still do think it makes sense. They, they know what cables and whatnot you want. They could have easily done a good job in those stores. But I think Amazon's going to buy Kohl's. They already have a partnership. Amazon has spent hundreds of millions of dollars on owned and operated clothing brands and, and furniture brands and other things that you're not going to buy if you don't see them. I don't know about you, Simon, but I might buy underwear or sports attire on Amazon, but I'm not going to buy it if I've never seen it, if I've never touched it. So if I can go into a Kohl's and go, okay, that's equivalent to, to what I wear for, say, gym shorts. Now, that's worked really well for Target. Target has a ton of owned and operated brands, and they're doing really well. That helps them control their supply chain. It allows them to have leverage over other vendors. Amazon really doesn't have that. The only Amazon owned and operated brand that sells well is Amazon Basics. If they were, if they own Kohl's, they could transform the merchandise there. And that's something Kohl's actually needs. Kohl's has admitted that their merchandise, their owned and operated brands are a little bit tired, that some of their partnerships are tired. So I actually think this is pretty likely. It's not a big purchase for Amazon. It solves a need. It also gives them a really interesting distribution footprint. And you've seen a lot of Kohl's locations have actually made their stores smaller and are devoting more of the store to back-end operations. Some of them have also leased out to Aldi and some other players, things that don't make that much sense for Amazon. They could close those. The Sephora deal makes them even more attractive for Amazon. So, you know, I've been wrong a lot of times, but I do think that deal is a good one. And special deals at those stores if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, I would I would assume, Dan? Yeah, I would think just like Whole Foods where, you know, you get extra sales at Whole Foods. They really integrate them. They'd immediately add things like Amazon lockers uh, so you could pick it up. They would take the uh, the package uh, return and they'd even ramp that up. So they do a pretty good job with that right now, forcing you to go all the way through the store. They could also use all the data Amazon has 
to sell you stuff. So they can go, okay, in your neighborhood, Simon, people are ordering a ton of uh, iPhone adapters and uh, razors to cut your hair. Uh, and they could go, okay, at our Kohl's, we're going to have a little display of stuff and it's going to be exactly what people want to buy in this neighborhood. And that's going to vary. That's actually something Amazon does a ton of anyway. Now they'll be able to do it even better if this deal happens. I love Kohl's. it. Good one. Kohl's is actually, uh, they, so they do Amazon returns and that's how I return a couple of things. It's so easy. You just go up, they're like, what do you return? And give us the code. You show them your phone, they scan it. They're like, get out of here. And then they give you a coupon for 50% off something. They throw your so box at you. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't even have to, bring a bo- you don't even have to package it. Right. You could just be like, Here's yeah, this. you just bring it up. Yeah. You're like, I don't want this anymore. They're like, give it to us. It's a great, but it's, I mean, that, that actually makes a lot of sense, Dan. That, which is why it will not happen based on my history of Amazon predictions. <laughs> Max supports this idea, Dan Klein. Good one. Okay. Uh, Matt Cochran, let's come to you. What do you think is going to happen in 2021? All right. So Box Incorporated has about a $3 billion market cap. It's a leading cloud content management platform. It enables organizations to uh, like automate and accelerate like business processes, uh, like, like power workplace collaboration, and protect and store data. And I believe it will be acquired by Salesforce this year. Salesforce has made a lot of uh, large uh, acquisitions in the last several years. Uh, They're a very uh, acquisitive company. Um, Notably, this year they acquired Slack. Uh, You know, in years past, they acquired Tableau and um, MuleSoft. Uh, Those are some of their other large uh, acquisitions. And they can acquire Box for a lot cheaper. And I believe they could get it for about $4 billion dollars. Second to that, I think uh, ServiceNow might acquire Box Incorporated too. But uh, I think Box will be acquired. That would be my main prediction. And then I think either by Salesforce or ServiceNow. Are you a fan of Salesforce's acquisition strategy, Matt? They make quite a few of those over the last decade. Are they doing a good job? Uh, Yes, I would say they are doing a good job. I'm not... I I thought the the Slack acquisition was a little large, actually. So I'm not sure... so personally, I would say like I'm a fan of some of their acquisitions, but overall strategy of like adding capabilities to their core product and just making their core ecosystem more and more sticky to its existing customer base. Uh, yes, I am a fan of that strategy. And I think yeah. Mark Benioff's done a, a great job with that. Yeah, definitely $4 billion. That's pocket change for Salesforce with all the money that they have to spend for acquisitions right now. Hey, Steve Simonton, what do you think about 2021? What's on your radar? I suspect it'll be better than 2020. And I I like how you asked for reckless M&A predictions and we're all providing like well-reasoned predictions that'll probably happen. <laughs> Until but, mine uh, comes up and then we're they really sound, They sound crazy on the surface. So I'm going to throw a crazy one out too. Um, let's go out on a limb and say that Tesla merges with Volkswagen. And, uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll say that actually, uh, I think recently Musk was asked... Um, can't remember where he was asked if they would ever perform a hostile takeover, which would be really interesting. Right. And he said, no, we, we have no interest in, in doing a hostile takeover of anybody, but if anyone had uh, merger considerations, we talk about it. And uh, Volkswagen's one of those that kind of comes to mind, especially given their long-term focus on transitioning to an EV model. And, and uh, that could be really interesting actually. And uh, you know, putting aside the fact that Tesla is like four times more valuable than Volkswagen now, which is just some people think is crazy, but uh, we've gone out of a limb already to say it's not. So uh, I know a lot of people who'd probably say, Oh goodness sakes, like the benefits of bringing a, a legacy automaker into the fold and one with a forward looking vision could be, could be really interesting. 
I love that Tesla made its way into the conversation. This is a much more realistic M&A acquisition <laughs> than, than mine that I gave Max about it being with an oil company. Max, do you have thoughts about Tesla and the, and the Volkswagen acquisition? I know you have something that you're thinking about Tesla right now. <laughs> I think, um, you know, it, we talked about this before, but like Tesla should just do this gargantuan stock raise. Then I might actually support it at, I mean, what's it at today? Like a $1.9 trillion market cap? It's, it's $640 billion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wait till next Monday. It'll be up. Um, but if they did a <laughs> big... Close, if, they so had a, almost. Yeah. if they had a bunch of cash, like some stupid amount, $50 billion, I don't know. Like, yeah, you could see. I, I think it'd be worth that valuation. But it's just such a momentum stock right now. I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. Thanks for putting me on the spot, too. I Sorry. had to, Max. I, I couldn't help it. I knew you had to have something to say. Austin Lieberman, I'm going to come to you next. Uh, what's your mo- your reckless prediction for 2021? Uh, we're picking on Salesforce a lot. I think this one's not too reckless. I, I think it's going to happen. I think uh, Alteryx gets acquired by Salesforce. They acquired Tableau. Um, Alteryx and Tableau partner a lot. They work together really well. It, it would make sense uh, for them to add that into the mix. Or Alteryx is going to get acquired by Snowflake. Uh, I'll move quickly. My reckless prediction is that Tesla, because we haven't mentioned Tesla on this call yet, acquires Ford and Max. I'm curious what you think about that. <laughs> yes, I like it. I like. Well, I think actually my reckless prediction, I'm going to change it, is that Tesla is going to buy both Volkswagen and Ford. How about that? There you go. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think Ford would be interesting because they've got the leading, you know, uh, F-150. Um, also, calling it out, I'm a minivan owner. I think Tesla's going to produce a minivan soon. They should be an awesome market for them. All right, let's uh, let's take this off track podcast. Let's keep it going, Simon. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we said to swing for the fences, and I self describe this as being reckless. So bear with me on this one, guys. But my reckless prediction for 21 is that Schwab is going to acquire Coinbase. Coinbase is IPOing in the next few weeks. They have filed the paperwork to be one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges that will now be publicly traded. They have more than 30 million accounts and $6 trillion in assets for Schwab already. They do not have a very large cryptocurrency platform yet. They got a little bit from the TD American trade, uh, TD Ameritrade, excuse me, uh, acquisition of this past year. They do have a platform, but then you look at Coinbase that has 35 million accounts globally. Uh, I think something like this would make a lot of sense. Schwab is a progressive brokerage. They slash the commissions for their trading of equities. Uh, they got access to cryptocurrencies through that TD Ameritrade acquisition that are taking place on the CME exchange right now. I think something like this is going to be very intriguing for them as cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin especially become more prominent in our financial services industry. Hey, Simon, what um, what valuation do you think it's going to have at the IPO? Granted, if it doesn't pop 400% the first day. <laughs> uh, by the way, Max, I didn't say Tesla in my prediction. So I'm, I'm not going to ask you for thoughts on Tesla acquiring my company. Uh, the last private valuation that Coinbase was uh, reported at was $8 billion in 2018. So that was two and a half years ago. I know it's worth a lot more than that. I wouldn't be surprised to see this come to the public markets at more than $20 billion in the IPO. I think last I checked that it was 28 was what they were looking for. So 
So that's reckless. That's my swing for the fences. We had quite a few reckless predictions there. I think that we put Max on the spot enough on this segment of the show. And we talked a lot about Tesla, which is always in the conversation for these kinds of things. But again, Manisha was looking at, at CAR-T and gene editing players. That's definitely a developing part of biotech right now. Uh, Max, you were saying that an oil and gas company is going to acquire an electric utility. Dan Klein saying that Amazon could buy Kohl's. Uh, Matt Cochran saying that Salesforce or ServiceNow might buy Box. Steve saying that Tesla might merge with Volkswagen. Austin saying that Alteryx could get acquired by Salesforce or Snowflake, or that Tesla could merge with Ford. And Simon Erickson saying that Schwab is going to acquire Coinbase. This was a fun podcast today. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in as we make some, some fun, reckless predictions for 2021. And also, on a more serious note, offer our thoughts about valuation. So we appreciate you tuning in. Like Once again, we are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are seven and nine. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.